You are listening to a series called Shadows, Discovering Christ Through the Old Testament from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more audio and other resources, visit theaxischurch.org. Well, welcome and good morning. I'm Jeremy, one of the pastors here, and I, just like you, um, am a sinner in need of God's mercy and grace, and I'm grateful to have this time with you so that we can all hear about the mercy and grace that comes to us through the person and work of the Son of God, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. We are in week eight of our 10-week series uh, entitled Shadows, where we're discovering Christ in the Old Testament. So go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 16. Exodus chapter 16, there should be some Bibles scattered throughout the room underneath the seats there in front of you. If you're on the front row and you need one, reach back, put an open hand and see what happens. Um, if you don't have a Bible, uh, those are hardback Bibles. They're, they're sturdy. Feel free to take it as your own, a gift from our church. As we begin uh, our, our service, our sermon today, I want to do so as we have uh, started each of our services through uh, this series. And I want to just talk briefly on reading and understanding um, the Old Testament. You see, the Bible is written uh, with a grand narrative in mind. Uh, it's written with a trajectory in mind, a meta-narrative, and it flows in four significant parts, creation, fall, redemption, recreation. Everything was wonderful, then through the fall, we chose to do our own thing in our own way, humanity, speaking of Adam and Eve, our representatives, and then Jesus was sent to redeem what we had broken and then restore it through the recreation of all things. So the Bible is really one seamless book that's all written about God's plan to redeem and restore and rescue his people, his children. What this means in part is that even in the Old Testament pages, long before you read about the Messiah in Matthew, speaking of Jesus, you get glimpses, you get taste, you get shadows, uh, you get uh, pictures or glimpses into the one, the Redeemer, who will come and make all things perfectly right and good and whole and complete once again. So the Old Testament stories in the Bible, sure, we can admire some of what we read about there. We can uh, imitate some of those characters in the Old Testament who are real people who truly followed God with radical obedience and radical cost, but they're not merely there for us to admire or imitate. They're really there to foreshadow the true and better hero that we're looking at in the Old Testament, shadowing the true and better version of those great people of faith, the one who acted for us, speaking of Jesus Christ. So we're gonna look at Jesus, the true and greater hero of all heroes through the lens of the manna that was given to the children of Israel while in the wilderness. I wanna provide a quick summary to catch us up where we are in Exodus. So. The Israelites, they're in brutal slavery under the rule and reign of Pharaoh there in Egypt. He oppresses them. He's trying to break their will. The human will is incredibly resilient. But under a lot of suffering, a lot of persecution, even the human will can be broken if it's pressed hard enough. And he was trying to do this. He was trying to destroy their spirit. And yet in the midst of this trial, the children of Israel increased all the more. They grew in power. They multiplied greatly. And so Pharaoh orders all newborn boys to be thrown into the Nile River. We learn of at least one mother who refused to do this for at least three months. 
she had her little boy, Moses. And as he became a little bit more difficult to keep quiet, as kids do, as you can hear one even right now. Uh, I love that sound. Uh, I really do. It's better than no babies. His mother built a waterproof floating basket to place him in, and she floated him down the Nile River, hoping to spare his life. Of all people, Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt, his daughter notices this floating basket and pulls it to shore, rescuing baby Moses, and she essentially adopts Moses. And so he was raised in Egyptian culture, and he experienced the finer things that life had to offer at the time. Well, then fast forward 40 years, he's still in Egypt. He's in Pharaoh's family. He's aware of his upbringing. He knows that he is a Hebrew, an Israelite. And he sees an Egyptian ruthlessly beating a Hebrew, an Israelite. And so in anger, he kills this Egyptian, buries him, hides him in the sand. Moses essentially found his heart more attached to his people, the Israelites, than where he was living, the land of Egypt. So word gets around about what Moses did and he runs out of fear to the land of Midian. He gets a job from a man named Jethro as a shepherd. He later marries Zipporah, Jethro's daughter, and they live there for 40 years and they have two sons. Meanwhile, back in Egypt, as he's in Midian, the slavery, the oppression, the brutality continues to culminate. It, the Israelites must be rescued. This has got to come to an end. And so God takes action. He calls Moses through a burning bush moment. And during this burning bush event, God tells Moses to return to Egypt, to where he was raised, where he'd been gone for 40 years, and to lead the Hebrews into Canaan, the promised land that was promised to Abraham. And he was told the God of Abraham will do this. The God of Abraham will be with you. You're not alone. Well, through a lot of insecurity, struggle and doubt, Moses does in fact return to Egypt, but he fails to convince Pharaoh to free the Israelites. Moses confronts Pharaoh another time with powerful signs and miracles, but still he doesn't release God's people. Instead, he adds burdens and increases the struggle and brutality on the Israelites because of Moses confronting. So the oppression grows. No straw is given to the Hebrews for them to use, which is an essential part of making brick and mortar. And so he forces them to go find and gather their own, but they must still produce the amount of bricks as if the Egyptians were providing them with all that they needed to do so. God responds by sending 10 plagues, the final plague being the death of the firstborn in every family. Even the Israelites, God's people, were subject to this final devastating plague. But there was a way out. There was a way to not experience God's judgment of the 10th and final plague. If the leader in each household would take a spotless lamb and slaughter it and cook it for his family, feed it to his family, and then finally take some of the blood from that lamb and smear it over the outside of the doorpost of their homes, they would by faith be spared from the plague. They would be rescued essentially. It's like the lamb's life in place of the firstborn's life. So long as the blood is there, the life is spared. This is a beautiful picture of substitutionary atonement, of one suffering in the place of another, one dying so that one may live. 
This is what we looked at last week as we pointed to Christ being the greater lamb who was slaughtered, covering us with his blood, sparing us from God's wrath and judgment. Well, finally, Pharaoh orders the children of Israel to leave. They're free and the great exodus is set in motion. And as the Israelites leave, the Egyptians, <laughs> this is awesome, they end up giving a lot of food, supplies, gold, livestock, all sorts of stuff to the Israelites because they had little to nothing as they were slaves. And so they're on their way to worship their God in freedom. And they follow God by way of a cloud by day. And then by a pillar of fire, they follow him by night. So where the cloud would stop, they would stop. Where it would move, they would move. At night, as the pillar of fire would move, they would continue to move with it. When it stopped, they would stop. But Pharaoh, yet again, as he did through many of the plagues, he changes his mind. So he sends soldiers, chariots, fighters, all that he could muster up, and he sends out to attack and bring back the Israelites. The Israelites, they see this, they hear hundreds of soldiers, literally we're told in Exodus, every chariot that was in Egypt was pursuing them. And they press forward to get away, but they're trapped. The Red Sea is blocking them, it's in front of them. So the people do what we often do, it gets upset with Moses. And he tells them, man, we were a lot better off back in Egypt. Now that's a very clear picture of us in the Bible. It's amazing how quickly we forget how subjective our judgments are, but God is not subjective. Even in this, he's working his plan. God tells Moses to go to the edge of the water to stretch out his staff. The water of the Red Sea miraculously divides and they cross not in muddy, like swampy type of water, but on dry land, like dust is coming up behind their wheels and their footsteps. It's radical. After they cross on dry land, the Egyptian shoulders are still, soldiers are pursuing them and God releases the water and the soldiers drown. The threat is over. God and his people are protected and delivered just as he promised. Wow, what an adventure. All is well, right? Not so much. Now they're in the wilderness and the supplies they do have will run out soon right? Their provisions will be depleted in a few days. They become hungry. Now, a personal take, I really like food and I don't really like hunger. When I'm asked by a doctor if I'm allergic to anything, I'm like, yeah, I'm allergic to penicillin, hunger, heat, and pain. They all cause a reaction within who I am. Um, and I'm not sure about you, but I've heard it many times. I'm just irritable right now. I just need to eat something, Right? Um, I, I just need to get something to eat and I'll feel better, right? We, we've said these things. One of our friends, uh, Miss Jenny Ortland, told Jill years ago about her husband, Pastor Ray Ortland. Ray can handle a more heavy discussion after a good meal. And uh, that's how a lot of us are. We don't like to be hungry. Uh, we get a little intense, rude, on edge uh, when we are hangry, right? So the Israelites, they're a little bit more than hungry. They're very hungry. And I'm sure they're panicking because you're out in the wilderness. You don't really see any food on the horizon. You don't see any provision being made readily accessible over the next few minutes. It's a long way away from having some food. I mean, I guess food could drop out of the sky, but other than that, you didn't really have many options, right? In Exodus chapter 16, look at verse two. And the whole congregation of the people, again, you're talking between 600 and 700,000 people 
and livestock. The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron there in the wilderness. Now the wilderness is a desert. It's a fact that life cannot be sustained, especially for 700,000 people in a desert. Exodus chapter 16, verse two and three, the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness and the people of Israel said to them, oh, that we would have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt while we, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Man, we had it so good in, in Egypt. We had all kind of meat. We had all kind of bread. Let's go back there. That was the good old days. They grumble after all that God has done. He performs miracles. He protects them. He delivers them. They witnessed the plagues. They saw his power. They saw the Red Sea part. They know God has been so faithful. It's interesting how quickly we can over-romanticize the past immediately after we've taken a significant risk and it not work out exactly like we thought it would. It's amazing how we can overly romanticize the past immediately after we have taken a radical step in obedience to follow God and it not work out just perfectly to our expectations. It's as if, if things don't go exceptionally well, if things don't go perfect, we question, we, we, we try, and we think to ourselves, why did I even try to obey God to begin with? Why did I try to better myself to begin with if this is what I'm getting? This isn't far from what the children of Israel did while here in the wilderness. I don't know, perhaps they felt like it was a great plan to leave Egypt, but now there's no plan for food. Let's go back. <laughs> we were beaten. We were oppressed. We were worked hard, but at least we had pots of meat. At least we had a lot of bread. Or maybe they had come to expect the miraculous. Maybe they've come to expect God to do something, but now they're hungry and they're blaming him, accusing him of wanting to just kill them in the wilderness. Why doesn't he do something? Let's see what God does. Look in Exodus 16 and verse four. Behold, I'm about to rain bread, not judgment, which is what they deserved. Rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will obey, whether they will walk in my law or not. God gave the Israelites manna. Now, the Hebrew word translated manna literally means, what, what is it? Literally, that's what it means. The Bible nowhere discusses like the chemical composition or makeup of manna, all we're told is that it is referred to as something like coriander seed, white, with a taste like wafers made with honey. So you're in the wilderness and God's raining pancakes and Krispy Kreme donuts out in the wilderness for you. In the desert, God is not absent. He's present and he's active and he's providing bread and he's telling you how to get it and he's promising that you will have it, like his mercy, every day. It's a fact you can't sustain life in a desert. It's a fact you shouldn't have fresh bread fall from the sky in the wilderness. God providing bread in the desert teaches us that the very best circumstances without God is a place of death. 
And the worst places and circumstances with God can be sweet. It can be a place of trust, of growth, and of joy. Now, tough times, desert times can make you better or worse. It can make you bitter or better. But one thing is for certain, tough times, struggle, desert moments, wilderness land living, you will, you will not remain the same. They impact you. And I'm learning, especially through my recent 19-month struggle with depression, that we experience healing and personal depth as a person as we go through wilderness times. In easy times, there's little to learn, so it seems. There's little development. There's not as much development of, of our inner self while we're at ease. It's in the struggle where we learn an awful lot about ourselves and our faith in God, and we learn a lot about God himself. It's in the struggle. A lot of pastoring can be reduced to preparing people to struggle well, to prepare them to endure suffering well. That's a lot of pastoring. You see, you're, you're justified, you're made righteous, instantly through faith and belief in Jesus Christ. You're sanctified, practically changed, real slowly through the wilderness, through trials, through testings, through struggles, through discipline, and through training. And just because you developed in your sanctification and are developing a little faster than others, it doesn't mean they're less obedient. There's no minimum speed requirement for sanctification. Don't become judgy in how quickly people change. We all change at different rates. Take care of the log that's in your eye. Let others handle the splinter that's in theirs. Let's not be judgy about our sanctification. We're made righteous instantly. We are slow churned, slowly developed through our sanctification becoming more and more who we already are in Christ eternally in the moment, slowly becoming more like him. It's like through sanctification, freedom in principle becomes true freedom through practice, practically. Like little suffering, little change. Much suffering, much change. Romans says uh, in chapter five and verse three and four, Paul says in the book of Romans, we rejoice in our sufferings. He should put should, all right? Often we don't rejoice in our sufferings. We should rejoice in our sufferings. Christian, rejoice in your sufferings, knowing that suffering isn't wasted. It produces something. It produces endurance. And not only that, but endurance produces a character within you that you wouldn't have without the endurance and without the suffering. And that character is developed to produce hope. Don't grow weary and hopeless as you suffer. Suffer well and let it produce hope. Remember 2 Corinthians, we just sang this, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light and momentary affliction, suffering and struggle is actually preparing for us something better, like an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison 
as we look not to the things that are seen, the struggle that we're in right now, but to the things that are unseen. What's happening below my skin? What's happening within who I am, beyond my circumstance? For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. People with depth, those people who seem firmly grounded in life, those people that you know that remain poised in the midst of chaos, they usually get that from experiencing pain in life through lots of struggle. Superficial, silly, simple thinking. This comes from little to no concept of enduring tough times. If you wanna be strong, if you wanna be deep, if you wanna be wise, if you wanna have substance about your character, if you wanna have ability, if you wanna have depth, if you wanna have poise, if you want to have resiliency, Unfortunately, that only comes through the wilderness. Yet our society resorts to sarcasm and humor, busyness, new, fast, shiny, better, bigger, so that we can feel better right now. We don't want to endure, we want to distract. We want to be distracted from pain and struggle. We're trying to avoid it, we're trying to ignore it. But true deliverance, character building, training in holiness and godliness. This is an arduous process. It's slow, it's difficult. It's being developed. The people of Israel were being developed. They needed to change. They had to experience heart change, true change. And so God sends them through these trials, the, the Red Sea moment. It's a test. He's developing them. Trust me, trust me. They experience hunger, it's a test. He sends manna, you can trust me. You can trust me. That's my phone. Interesting. <laughs> God does this. He changes them through their wilderness experience. And know this, that the wilderness land of struggle is not a wasted experience if you learn more about yourself and more about God. The wilderness is meant to be productive. You're there on purpose. It's not timeout. It's not because you're in trouble. Again, the wilderness here in this context is a desert and life cannot be sustained in a desert. Now think about this for a second. Who led them into the desert? Who led them into the desert? God led them into the desert. The cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night, God has taken them to this place. God is leading them to hard places, to difficult, tough places. This is his plan. Just because your life is difficult at times, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're doing things wrong. Just because it's difficult at times, it doesn't mean that God is doing things wrong. The struggle is where you grow. Without resistance in the gym, you will not grow strong. Each and every struggle, whether it's our foolishness that led us there or whether it's God that led us there, every struggle is meant to grow us and strengthen us and mold us more and more into who God is calling us to be. We're being refined, we're being developed. The purpose of God's discipline is not to punish you, but to transform you and to form you. He's already punished you for your sins. That's what Jesus was doing on the cross as he suffered in our place for our sins. 
First Peter 3.18 says, for Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous one, Jesus, for the unrighteous ones, us, so that he might bring us to God. He suffered for our sins already, so we know that our trials aren't to punish us. It's to develop us. Jesus experienced the punishment for us so that the trial could develop and not crush. Again, the purpose of God's discipline is not to punish you, but to transform you. Yield humbly to his process. Remember Hebrews chapter 12, verse five, my son, not the one I'm angry with, not my enemy, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Discipline is used nine times in these few verses, nine times. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved and corrected by him for the Lord disciplines, sends struggle to the one he hates. No, the one he loves. And he chastises every son in whom he receives, not rejects. It is for discipline that you have to endure. Remember, these hard times, it's meant to develop endurance, endurance, character, character, hope. It's discipline that you have to endure. It's God treating you as family. He's treating you as those he's received. He's treating you as a son. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which we've all participated, then you are illegitimate children. And we have a curse word today for what that term means. Illegitimate children and you're not sons. Besides this, we've all had earthly fathers who disciplined us for sure as we respected them. And shall we not much more be subject to the fathers of spirits and live for they disciplined us for a short time. I should quote that to my dad when he was wearing me out for a long time. For they disciplined us for a short time, dad, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we might share in his holiness. This discipline is to produce holiness. For the moment, discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Yes, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have submitted themselves, humbled themselves to the process and been trained by it. Those who don't run from it and reject it, but those who submit to it and are trained by it. <clears throat> Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. There's a healing effect to submitting to discipline and strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Again, just because it's difficult at times, it does not mean you're doing things wrong, nor does it mean that God is absent and doing things wrong. In either case, your faith is to be cultivated through the struggle, not crushed by the struggle. By faith, endure your struggle well, knowing that God is in it and he's using it even when it seems the complete opposite. And when a Christian suffers, it's their big moment to point others to the sufficiency of Christ. When a Christian suffers, it's their big opportunity to point to the abiding and indwelling Holy Spirit of God that's within them, comforting them as they patiently endure. And the enemy is aware of the power and influence of a Christian who patiently endures suffering well through their trial. And so he does all he can to distract and deceive such a one. 
The enemy blinds those who aren't Christians yet and he distracts those who are Christians already. And often this plays out in the suffering Christian being led to believe that God is absent, heartless, or careless. Don't waste your suffering in this way. Don't buy the lie that the enemy's trying to sell you. Don't be deceived. Now back to the children of Israel. The children of Israel, they spent 40 years wandering around in the desert. And verse three, they say basically, we had it, all, we had it better off in Egypt. They hated it in Egypt. They hated it. They cried out to the Lord and he rescued them because they hated it. But now they want it back. They desire it. They're asking for it. You see, internally, they were still slaves. They had to learn to be free. God had to teach them to be free and teach them even more to trust him, that they can trust him. Now, now consider it later on in Deuteronomy chapter eight and verse two. You shall remember the whole way that the Lord God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. There was something more going on than just hunger. He was teaching them. Man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you. Your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord, your God, disciplines you. Remember how the Lord humbled you and tested you. He tested you in order for you to know what was in your own heart and what you truly thought of him through the struggle. So their 40 years in the the wilderness served them for education and training, not merely transportation and destination. So it is with you. So Jesus is the greater manna. And he tells us this in John chapter six, starting in verse 27. John six is beautiful. He says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the son of man will give you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, the Pharisees, what must we be doing to be doing the works of God? Jesus said, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. This is what we do as Christians, we believe. That's our great work is to believe him. So they said to him, well, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers, after all, ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So give us a sign. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, and I love this, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. 
All that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, speaking of his chosen people, but to raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Speaking of his crucifixion. See, manna was God's miracle providing for his people, and it was given day by day. Manna was used to help the, uh, meet the need of a physical desire, a physical need for sure. But it was also given in order to show God's love and generosity and point to his faithful provision, ultimately pointing to his ability to rescue and save his children. The manna was never meant to be an end in and of itself. It was pointing forward, it was shadowing, it was pointing forward to God's provision for life, for true life, for real life, for eternal life. It was pointing forward to the true and great provision that comes only through Jesus Christ. And so it is with all blessings we receive. They're to direct our hearts to the giver, God himself. See, manna came down from heaven and filled stomachs, addressing physical hunger. But Jesus came down from heaven and filled hearts, addressing spiritual hunger. And God didn't expect his people to create their own bread like they had to create their own bricks. He brought it down to them. And God does not expect us or ask us to perform and work for our salvation. The gospel tells us that his son performed as us, for us already. So we're not to resort to moralism and try to do a lot of good things or legalism, trying to stay away from a lot of bad things to work for our salvation. These are not the paths to heaven. We were never supposed to earn our salvation. God brings Jesus down to us. God saves sinners. Sinners do not save sinners. It rained manna when they deserved wrath to be rained down upon them because they're grumbling. It rained wrath upon Jesus when he didn't deserve it so that we can be free from condemnation, shame, and judgment, and wrath. The Hebrews, they had a need that they could not satisfy while they were there in the wilderness. And God gave them manna, physical bread, to satisfy their physical need, which was hunger. And we all have a greater need that we can never satisfy on our own. And the need is to be restored back into relationship and friendship with God, this relationship which has been severed, broken, and destroyed because of our sin and rebellion. God gave us Jesus the greater manna to satisfy the spiritual need, which is to be made holy and made righteous. And remember, as we read, without holiness, without righteousness, it's impossible to be reunited with God. We can't produce what's needed on our own. We can't produce pure holiness and pure righteousness. So God gives this to us through Jesus Christ. Now I wanna make a closing observation. 
that, that you and I, we all experience particular hunger and craving within our hearts. You and I, we long to matter. We wanna make an impact. We wanna be seen as valuable. We wanna see ourselves as worth something. We wanna have peace. We wanna have contentment. We would love to have soul rest. We desire to be noticed and important. This hunger, this desire, this craving wasn't original to us. It's foreign and it's a product of our sin. Its root is our sin, the separation from God that our sin has caused. You see, you and I are both created in the image of God. And what this means in part is that we all have a God-shaped void in our life, in the way that we think about life. Our reality, we're, we're struggling with a void that we can't satisfy. We, there's, there's a gap that we can't fill. There's a hunger that we can't satisfy. This can only be satisfied with a personal relationship with God. <clears throat> Growing up in the 80s, uh, we had some really cool toys, like rocks and sticks. Um, and, uh, and this thing, y'all remember this thing? Um, do you know who makes this thing? What's the brand name? Do you know this? Tupperware. Who knew that? I love that. Tupperware makes this. All right. <clears throat> now, growing up, my brother and I, I, that'll get me in trouble. I can't say a lot of that. But one of the things that we did is once we lost these pieces, we would pelt each other with this thing. And it hurts. Now, the designer of this, whenever they design this, how many people have played with one of these growing up? Anybody? Yeah, a lot of us. We've seen this before. Well, the designer, Tupperware, designed this in such a way that only the piece designed for the space can be filled by that piece. You can't, it's, it's, it's designed to where no other shape will fit the opening of any other shape. It's designed particularly for that particular shape so that kids couldn't be like, oh, it fits here, oh, and it fits here, and it fits here. They were trying to teach the shapes, right? In a similar way, God designed our hearts he designed our hearts to where we have a unique hole within our heart, a void that can only be filled with a particular shape. And we try filling that void with all sorts of different shapes. Our hearts have that void as we suffer from a God loss and we try stuffing good health in that gap. For a moment, it feels pretty good but then good health is not sustainable. At some point, we all die. We try to fit it with more friends, but eventually those friends may turn on us. They may move away. They may die. We may move away. Friends change. We fill it with good family. We fill it with fame. We fill it with notoriety. We fill it with money, more money. We fill it with safety, comfort. We fill it with trying to be fast we've, or trying to be first or having control or conquering our fears. We try stuffing a shape through the hole that's within us as we try to maybe finger point at others, blame others for why we aren't where we want to be. Or maybe we try filling the void with getting even with others, but even this is empty. It doesn't fit. You see, our void was never intended to be satisfied by these things. The void in your heart is uniquely designed to only be filled by God alone. The void in your life can only be filled by his presence and his spirit. The true lasting peace that you're looking for only comes from his presence. The foundation of your longing 
was never meant to be filled with stuff. Never. That only comes from God alone. And so hunger has been given to you in part to teach us that. Nothing will ever satisfy like God, nothing. Your soul was made and designed for him, by him. And every desire you have is an echo of the longing for him. Each and every person that we ever meet was made to be satisfied in God alone. And it is the Christian's job, it's the church's job to tell them of the love that comes from God through Jesus that fills the void they're trying to fill. This is the work of the Christian. This is what it means to be an ambassador of reconciliation. You're telling people who are looking for this void to be filled how to have that void filled so that they can be reconciled to God. And the search for this hunger, being satisfied, can't stop with anything except God alone because only God can satisfy. Jesus came with one main mission, to bring you back to God so that you can be made happy in him. So come to Jesus and believe him. Remember again, 1 Peter 3.18, Christ suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. What a wonderful invitation. What a wonderful, true and lasting eternal satisfaction that can be yours if you would, what the wilderness was supposed to do, humble yourself and look to him for the provision you're trying to figure out on your own. To those who are seeking Christ, pursue him, pursue him. Plan your day and calendar around getting time with him. Worship him with your life, with your time, your skills, your money, your thoughts. Read and study the Bible. Begin, if you have a place to begin, begin in the Gospel of John. It's in the New Testament portion of your Bible. Pray, talk to God. Talk with him, hear from him, and connect deep with the church family, either this one or some other. Dig into accountability there. Be known there. Have friendship there. Have community there. Ask God for faith to believe him and to believe him more and to trust him and to trust him more. And pray for boldness to press more and more into him, to learn more and more what it's like to follow him. Because I believe that most of us, if not all of us, want change, true change. And so to find this, you think and you dwell on and you ponder on the things that you've heard today because true change, lasting change is found through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Think on these things and you'll become a Christian. Think deeply on these things and the Christian will be made happy. Each and every week we share in communion as we celebrate what Christ has done. We've got bread and we've got wine. The bread is symbolic of the perfect body of Christ that he lived in exchange for our sinful lives. So when you think bread, think representative because he lived that life for you, as you. Then we're gonna dip it into the juice or the wine, which is symbolic of the blood that he shed as he gave up his own life as a sacrifice for our sins. The blood of Christ, symbolic of our perfect covering as our perfect substitute. And so today we as Christians are gonna come and we're gonna take bread and we're gonna dip it into the juice or wine, remembering what Christ has accomplished for us, remembering how God has provided for us what we needed most, and remembering how God has saved us from sin and death through the finished work of his son. We're gonna have servers on either side of the stage here. We've got self-serve stations in the back two corners. 
Let's pray as we remember all that Christ has done for us. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. And we proclaim the great mystery of the faith that Christ Jesus has come, he's lived, he's died, he's risen, and he will surely come again. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And now may the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be on this time of communion and remain with us always, even through the end of the age. Amen. Christian, when you're ready, please come and take, remembering what Christ has done for you. You can come when you're ready.